you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Bonkink and Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to give back to Edmonton's community. On this podcast, we share stories from spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. On today's show, Teresa Majorin is back to talk about the Belcourt Brasso Métis Awards, or the BBMAs as we call them. The BBMAs are the student awards for Alberta's Métis of any age. They began in 2001 with the goal of helping Métis Albertans realize self-sufficiency through post-secondary education and skills development. These awards have now provided more than $7.2 million through more than 1,800 awards. They continue to make a big impact on Alberta's Métis community. We last talked about these awards back in Episode 4, when we discussed how BBMAs help connect students to their Métis heritage. But that connection isn't always an easy one to make. The communities we grew up in shape who we are, our ideas, and our opinions. Reaching out to become part of a new community could mean that those ideas and opinions shaped in part by the people we know and care about will be challenged. Lisa Pruden spoke with Teresa Majorin, Tanea Mahi, and Ramsey Mudrick to learn more about the BBMAs and the challenges of reconciling a new cultural identity. Since they've got started, the Belcourt Brasso Métis Awards have supported the education of over 1,200 Métis students, students from all over Alberta. You might remember Teresa Majorin. I am the uh, coordinator and uh, manager of the marketing initiatives for the Belcourt Brousseau Métis Awards. Take a great deal of pride in what I do. It's so rewarding to watch these students as they move forward in their journey towards the career and the dreams that they have. Teresa joined us again to tell us about how these awards got started, what they do, and her special role as Auntie Métis. So you last joined us way back in our early days of the podcast on episode four, and you were there talking with um, Austin Zarco about his experience with the BBMAs. And I remember that you had a bit of a nickname <sighs> coined for yourself <laughs> among the students. Yes, it uh, was the young students as the years went on. One of them started calling me Auntie Métis. It means I feel like uh, and act like they're auntie. Um, these students call me from anything to uh, I need child care to I'm struggling from my marks or have an exam and I have anxiety. I like to follow these students all the way through their journey. I have a personal vested interest in seeing them complete and uh, achieve what they started. And, and now I'm going to back up just a touch. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Belcourt Brasso Métis Awards are? Yes, uh, it's a very exciting uh, dynamic program. It's a non-governmental uh, pool of funding that's managed through the Edmonton Community Foundation in the form of an endowment. And where that endowment began was from three Métis men, uh, quite the philanthropic uh, guys. Their community-mindedness uh, led them to start a housing corporation back in the 70s. Uh, to provide housing for Métis and Indigenous people. So as time went on, they liquidated that company, and in 2001, they came to the Edmonton Community Foundation and endowed $13 million. Just jumping in real quick, their very first endowment 
in 2001 was actually for $3 million, which they increased to $13 million over the first three years of the fund. All right, back to Teresa. Well, fast forward now 15 years, that fund has grown to $19 million. We have funded over 1,200 Métis students now living their dreams and working in the career fields of their choice uh, by providing $7.2 million, which is the interest on that endowment. So it's quite um, a nice... Uh, uh, program. It uh, helps those that have barriers such as an inability to pay their tuition, uh, things like that. Often when Métis are relocating to the urban setting, it's quite a challenge that first year. So we like to support them through year one, two, and three, each individually um, having them apply for each year, and then um, finish it up with sending them off to Rupert's Land, where they will have their fourth year uh, covered should they qualify. Teresa has just described both the financial and community support that the BBMAs offer for students. The community support is especially important because for many of these students, becoming a BBMA recipient is a big step in their journey of recognizing and embracing Métis heritage. And while that idea of embracing one's heritage is wonderful, it isn't always easy. There, of course, can be challenges when you are learning and becoming influenced by a new cultural identity. I asked Teresa what kinds of struggles she has seen students come through. Yes, that's a very uh, good question because that's at the core of everything that goes right to the heart of the matter. Um, besides being a funding program, we really uh, take pride in bringing these students uh, one step closer to their culture or enhancing what they already have as a cultural competency. So I do see the struggles with the students. They've gone through years and years of not understanding their identity through their family connections. Some kids have been in foster care. Um, it's almost like a denial of their heritage. Once they realize how valuable that is to their spirit and their ability to choose things and move forward with a strong force behind them, it's like a fire. It just catches on. I have had hundreds of students and their families email, phone, text, just so happy that we were the, either their first contact point or another point of re-entry into finding their culture. And to me, what's so exciting is they're finding each other. Um, I always joke with them when they tell me how happy they are to know their Métis and what that means as they're moving into their career in different phases. And I tell them, well, you know, we always find our tribe. And I think when I see them networking and sharing ideas, that is at the heart of what this program is about. Um, it's more about more than money, is what the founders say. It's about giving them a chance to have a step up, not a handout. So I've talked to students that have been in their career for up to 10 years now, and they still talk about how they want to give back. Now they're in a place where they can appreciate and they have gratitude uh, for where they are. And it's more than that. It's the ri richness of what they feel within themselves as a sense of identity. This sense of identity has had a strong impact on two students we're about to meet, Ramsey Mudrick and Tanea Mahi. They each received a BBMA in 2018 and are both focused on pursuing careers to help support Indigenous communities. Tanea and Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. So just to get us started, what is this award helping you to achieve? 
So the BBMA is going to allow me to become a paramedic, go for my education to become a paramedic. The biggest thing I think the BBMA is about is taking away the financial limitation of achieving education, um, which kind of just makes it limits, limitless. Um, when I first got the BBMA, I was going to the U of A for psychology, and I decided I didn't really enjoy it. So I switched over to become a paramedic, and um, a transition like that was possible because of the BBMAs, um, because I didn't have to worry about the money as much. And thanks to the BBMAs, uh, I'll definitely be able to achieve more education in the future, even after my paramedic, because it just takes away that limitation and it allows you to get as much education as you want, I guess, even if you only get it once. Um, one of the big things with the BBMA for me was it was really my push to go to university because before I wasn't going to go at all. But then when I got the notification that I was accepted for the award and that I was asked to speak at it, I was like, well, this is my sign. I need to go. So I went and it's covering my tuition. So that helps a lot coming from a single mother family with nine siblings. So like money's tight for me. It's going to allow me to pursue my dream of being a teacher. So like one of my big dreams is to teach on settlements or reserves. When you think of yourself as a teacher in the future, what are you hoping to bring to your community? Um, one of the big things is moral support because one of the main things about being a teacher is just being there for your students and like being another person they can go to when they need like a mentor or something and even just a friend. And I believe like on settlements or reserves, it'll be like a really big family atmosphere because that's what the whole culture is about. So I want to be, like, just another person they can go to and that I can help them in their journey in finding their self-identity. <laughs> and how about yourself, Ramsey, for being a paramedic? Becoming a paramedic is just one part of it. Uh, I'm very interested in pretty much all aspects of emergency services. And I've been a volunteer firefighter for about three years now in uh, my small hometown of Buck Point. And um, something I've noticed on, like, the reserves and the settlements is that uh, emergency services aren't very great there. And all the services are usually coming from towns that are up to, like, an hour away. Um, so response times and care usually isn't that great. And um, so that's something I definitely want to improve in the future through volunteer fire departments and then advocating for ambulances actually being on reserves and settlements. Um, and just improving those services in those areas. You both seem very invested in, in your community and wanting to support it. Um, were you always connected to your Métis heritage and communities? I definitely wasn't because I was adopted into a non-Indigenous, well, by a non-Indigenous person who adopted Indigenous children. Um, but we didn't necessarily embrace our culture. We were told like that we were Métis or Treaty, but we didn't go out of our way to fully embrace it. And we didn't really have a full understanding of what it meant to be those things. So like growing up, if somebody asked us like, 
are you Métis or are you in, are you Treaty? And we'd like say yes, of course. And then they, uh, we didn't really have like a backup statement. Like we didn't really understand what that meant. So like as I got older and as like I got to university, thanks to the BBMA, uh, I really just started understanding what it actually meant, like the history behind it. So that's like one of the big things I'm grateful because of the awards, because it's actually allowing me to learn about my history more in depth. For myself, I was definitely raised in a non-Indigenous household. Um, my mom was Métis, uh, but my dad's Ukrainian. That's where the name Mudrik comes from. <laughs> and uh, it was definitely more of a Ukrainian household. Occasionally, my mom would talk about it a little bit, but when we went to her side of the family's gatherings, it's not like the culture was really there, whereas we, when we went to my dad's side, it was like Nalezhniki and Petahen, Kubasa and all that kind of stuff, so uh, the culture was very strong on that side. But uh, growing up, uh, once I started finding my own identity, I definitely embraced the Métis side. Yeah, but since I've been a teenager, I've been definitely embracing that side more, and a big push was the Belcor Brasu Métis Awards. The first ceremony I went to, it was just so awesome seeing the actual culture, the jigging, the fiddle. We got to see Buffalo, which was really cool. <laughs> so when you were first learning about your heritage and making that choice on whether to invest in learning more, were there any challenges in making that connection? Um, well, for me... Like, embracing my Métis identity was a struggle because my family is, like, like my birth family is very mixed with, uh, like, full status, First Nations, and then Métis, or there's, like, a lot of non-Indigenous in there. But then mainly, like, my family embraces the Cree culture. So, like, I was very, like, mixed on, like, what I should do. Like, what am I? Like, I don't understand. Like, and it... It's hard talking, like, with my birth family because I'm, like, I never grew up with them and it just saw, I just see them in visits. So it's just a struggle and it's kind of, like, weird asking them that question because of those barriers between us. But um, as I got older, like, my relationship with my birth family became closer and then I began, like, seeing, like, by observing, like, seeing everything and, like, finally, like, um, coming up with a decision of what I wanted to be and like who I was and like what my family was so um yeah I made the decision to become Métis and to get my card was a really big hassle because trying to find my family lineage was very hard because my birth family didn't have it and if they did have it it was under treaty status so I was like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, should I go with Treaty or should I go with Métis? So it was a very back-and-forth decision. But then finally, everything fell together. There was a land claim number that kind of, like, cemented me being Métis and what got me my card. <laughs> so it was a very long process. It took a year. <laughs> when you kind of really embrace the being part of, like, the Métis nation, there's almost, like, an element of, like, nationalism. Not to use nationalism as like a really strong word, but it's to it's for someone that like really supports their nation and like the benefits of their nation. And when you have a lot of friends and a lot of family that aren't uh, aren't indigenous, you're obviously going to have views that support the Métis side of you 
that kind of go against like the Canadian side, I guess, just because views don't really always serve both sides. So there's that kind of limitation, that divide. Would you be comfortable in sharing an example of one of those ideas? So, like I said, when I was growing up, I wasn't really that big into uh, my Métis side yet. And I definitely had very Canadian nationalist views, um, and most of my friends did as well. Um, but then once I started kind of um, embracing my Métis identity and kind of having a different perspective on things, on like uh, reconciliation and things like that, um, they don't really always understand and there's kind of a difficulty of trying to explain it to them just because there's those very different views also uh we both come from small towns and small towns definitely have a bit of a struggle with their relationships with uh nearby yeah with their nearby uh, reserves and settlements um and there's definitely some discrimination in that way it's always kind of a struggle trying to get around that as well um just because I am always involved with the communities I am, uh, I am in. Um, so when I'm in like my hometown community and they're kind of saying or doing negative things uh, towards indigenous people, it's like a clash of identities almost. In reconciling your cultural identities, uh, it seems like it's been quite a journey to do that. How has this shaped you for who you are now? So. From now to when I didn't know uh, know much about my heritage, I guess, um, I guess just where I walk matters a lot more. Every step I take in Alberta, it's like so much history has happened here. Living and working in Edmonton, it's just insane how much history has happened here. St. Albert, St. Paul uh, in our area. Um, and knowing that kind of heritage and that kind of history, it's definitely changed a lot of perspectives in me. Whereas before, um, I kind of thought of Canada as kind of a really boring place. <laughs> but it's actually incredibly interesting how much history has happened here. And um, I just feel like a lot of people don't know about it. And that's why in high school, we probably learn about a lot of places that aren't really relevant to us <laughs> at all. But um, and we don't really learn much about Canadian history when there's actually so much history to be, uh, to be learned. And when you learn about the indig indigenous perspectives, that's just a whole another side to the story that's just not taught, really. And that's something I definitely love diving into. And when you learn about their perspectives on everything and why they made the decisions they did, um, it's based on their beliefs about the environment, about their people, um, just about how they want to live their lives and I think their perspective on how to live life has definitely changed my perspective as well. Well like I said earlier one of the big things about my journey towards like my Métis identity was like the back and forth between well like am I Cree or am I Métis and for me like one of my biggest things that I have to keep telling myself and it's like I don't have to put myself in either one because that's just my family like, that's who we are. Um, and the big thing about Métis is, like, the best of both worlds. It's so diverse. It's European. It's um, First Nations. It's just many things. As I keep learning more about the history, like, the more that idea is, like, cemented because 
like my family has so much history like my uh, great great uh, grandmother she was one of the first babies born on one of the uh, settlements here in Alberta and then my family's from the Papas Chase uh, nation and that was a really big historical thing because uh, that nation was wiped out here in Edmonton and my family is from one of the few survivors so that's like really big and I keep learning that as I get older and like from my interactions with family members I never used to so I just think uh, coming into my Métis identity is always going to change because I'm always learning stuff. With all the learning and growth that you've had over just the last couple of years what teachings and or learnings have really stuck with you? Um, well, with my Métis identity and my, like, with my family being so diverse, like, either, like, Cree, Métis, um, one of the biggest things are just, like, the Cree spirituality teachings that my family passes on to me. Like, those really resonate to me, like, the environmental stuff, like Ramsey touched on. Like, the way I see the earth is, like, a hundred times, like, more different than it was before when I didn't know anything about it. Like, I treat the earth with so much more respect. Like, everything around me has meaning. And yeah, that's one of the big things that just resonates with me. Probably the biggest thing that resonates with me is just how I want to live my life after learning about it. I want to live in a community and I want to serve that community. And I kind of want to live more of a humble life while still making change because there's obviously change that has to be made in the indigenous communities and I want to be a, a part of that. I think part of that is almost living humbly, living charitably, and living to help others, I guess. And that's kind of what my work field is all about. It's about helping people, right? And same with Tanea's. Um, and that's kind of just what we want to do in our lives is just help people so that they'll help others and then it'll just be a better community to live in. When we're older, we want to do it in our own community, um, but we hope that it echoes and kind of goes further than that. So I was about to close the interview here, but Tanea and Ramsey could not go without telling me about the annual BBMA award ceremony and how much being a part of that ceremony has meant for them. The ceremonies really are great experiences. They're probably one of the highlights of it. For the two I've gone to, they were both just absolutely amazing. Getting that experience and being able to just hang out and talk to a bunch of different Métis people, um, especially when you're someone that hasn't had that much contact with other Métis people. It was just overall very great experiences. Um, the music, the dancing, the culture, and then also some of the history. Just looking back, they've always been my favorite things to go to, I guess. And I want to go to, like, everyone in the future. <laughs> um, the ceremonies, for me, were very enlightening because, like, growing up, uh, I never really saw anything Métis besides, like, going to jigging classes. And those were, like, probably like a one month kind of thing when I was eight years old so I wasn't very like I never saw it in person so going to the ceremony it was just like so lively and vibrant and the music was so fun and like everyone was just happy I don't think anyone there was like sad had a frown on their face 
it was just a very fun experience. And I think that makes the awards even more important because you're like in the Métis community, you're experiencing what it is. And I think it just validates your, your Métis identity even more. My favorite thing about Métis events, like whether it's the BBMA ceremony or uh, the Christmas dinners or the annual assembly, is that they're just always really welcoming. And I love that the most about them. Like, just so welcoming. Yes, especially since it's anti-Métis. <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> A big thanks to Teresa Majerin for telling us about the Belco Brasso Métis Awards, and to Tanea Mahi and Ramsey Mudrick for sharing their journey and learning about embracing their Métis heritage. And if you're interested in applying, the Belcourt Brasso Métis Awards range from $1,000 to $10,000. Here's Teresa Majerin again to tell us what the eligibility requirements are. There's uh, three main criteria, and one of them is to be Métis. If you are not a member and carrying your card of citizenship, all we do is guide you to the nation so you can start that process. The next is to have a career in mind that uh, can make you more economically uh, viable in our society. And the third is to have some connections within our community. And I always tell the students, because they're young, it's about your anticipated connections as well and giving us some concrete ideas of what you might do to enhance your connections to make you a better candidate. Deadline each year is March 31st at midnight and it is an online application. Thanks again, Teresa. For more details on how to apply, visit ecfoundation.org and find the BBMAs under the Grants tab. You can find the right link here in our show notes. Oh, Andrew, before we go, we've got a volunteer opportunity to share. That's right. The opportunity is for our grants committees here at Edmonton Community Foundation. And we have the perfect person here to talk about this. And she is Cassandra Lundell, our community grants associate. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Volunteers play a key role in the granting work here at the foundation. And we want our committees to reflect the diversity of the communities we serve. And we're looking for new members to join our granting subcommittees. It's a great opportunity to get involved in the community and with the foundation and to meet some new people. Personally, I think it's a really great way to see the variety of agencies working to support our community, not to mention you get to have some really good input on where those grants might go. How cool is that? I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about the work that the committee does and like what people can expect if they do end up becoming a volunteer? Our volunteers meet quarterly. They meet as a group, normally face-to-face. They review applications anywhere between four and ten, and they provide recommendations to a granting programs committee on what those might be. So how would somebody apply if they were interested? So we have a call on our website, which shows um, all the variety of subcommittees that we have, because we have five different subcommittees that we're currently recruiting for. And you can apply via email with a little letter and a cover resume talking about how you meet some of those criteria that we're looking for. And the email is grants at ecfoundation.org. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for popping by to let us know about that, Cassandra. And if any of our wonderful listeners out there are interested in applying, we will also have the link in our show notes. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you have time, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews are a big help. We're also on Facebook at Well Endowed Podcast. Please come and say hi to us there. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonking. Until Until next time. time. 
The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.